Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the essential role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, our specialist place and environments teams work globally with architects, developers, cities, corporations, and governments, delivering successful human-centered solutions across place visioning, property branding, and strategic wayfinding and signage. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to the 12th episode of our Design Your Life series on architecture, the home, and interiors. From Lego to skyscrapers. Today I catch up with a talented duo of Henry Wilson and David Kayon. Henry and David have joined forces to form the Australian-based Laker Studio, combining their intelligent, sustainable designs with a respect for the impermanence of contemporary living. Henry Wilson is a furniture and industrial designer, famous for the A-joint tables. His stunning range of objects and products are world-renowned, and he's also designed interiors for two Aesop stores. David is an industrial designer who has worked with Mark Newson in Paris for clients including Qantas, Samsonite, and Dom Perignon, to name a few. I want to welcome Henry Wilson and David Kayon. How are you guys doing? Good. Yeah, Good. very well. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. You're both based in Darlinghurst in a stunning studio. Luke and I went there the other day, um, incredibly envious of, uh, of your space. And it's your house too, right, Henry? Yeah, that's correct. I uh, I bought the block probably eight years ago, and then have always had had lots of different things in there, from my home to a studio to a car park to you know it's it's actually had a lot of different uses, and now finally it's um it's kind of all there together, and uh, and it's in two sort of parts. So David's in the front, and um, yeah, we share part of that, and then I live out back. Yeah, it's an incredible setup. Um, I'm going to come to your house next, David. <laughs> <laughs> you guys can come to my house. Yeah, I mean, it's like I was in there like, I don't know, maybe two years ago or maybe more, actually. Five years ago. Yeah, and it might have been. Yeah, it was a while back since here. Yeah. So let's kick it off. We're going to talk Henry first. Um, and we've known each other for a few years now. I can't remember how exactly we met. I thought it was through Object Gallery. Yeah, that rings a bell. Yeah, um, something to do with the with a sort of design alliance or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, in our, in our studio here in Sydney, we've got your beautiful tables. We're sitting on Eames table. This is not one of yours, but uh, the ones out in the studio, we've got some beautiful A-joint tables, which you designed for us for the Redfern studio, which we brought over now to Alexandria. It, it, you know, that's kind of in a way, it kind of, it's, it's kind of as a designer, you like to collect other designers' objects and things like over time. And I'm really excited that we've got the a a joint tables as part of Frost Collective, uh, part of our, I guess, our design vernacular, but also around using it every day. It's something that's really solid. They look beautiful. They work in the space. How did that, how did that come about? Yeah, it was, a, it was interesting. That, so I started um, studying in, in Holland um, around 2006, um, and I was there for two years, and I was constantly trawling kind of flea markets and all these... Place, you know, Europe's just got such a treasure trove of, mm. of, of, of unauthored, you know, 
objects and they're, and they're all over the place. There's such a history of design. And one of the things that I came across when I was there was this kind of, it was this plastic kind of sawhorse bracket that was a um, that was you know used mm. to make a pair of your, your own sawhorses. Yeah. And in that, I saw this little kernel of an idea that I just thought was absolutely genius. This kind of clamping method, and I thought, you know what, there's there's an idea in here that we could you know really um, maximize. And 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 I kind of stuck in the back of my mind, and I did the rest of my studies. Came back to Australia and was searching for what to do, and I was working. Um, I was assembling bicycles at Tokyo Bike. I was a like, bicycle oh, yeah. mechanic there and doing a bit of um, odd jobs and working in bars and restaurants and just trying to sort of figure out what I was going to do next. And then, um, yeah, I, um, I actually kind of pulled myself together for a little design show that, um, that was happening in Redfern at the time. And the method of making things was... Um, was all sand casting. You had to make all everything with sand casting. And people were doing lots because sand casting is one of those things that you can do at an industrial scale or you can do quite small and sort of almost in your back backyard shed you can melt down some pewter mm. and pour it in a bit of sand and that's actually sand casting. Um, so some you know jewelers, lots of people do it as a hobby practice. And uh, I actually I, I didn't do that. I went to a found uh, a foundry here in Sydney and and um, took an idea to them and they said, go away, we can't do this. You need to talk to a pattern maker. So I went and found a pattern maker, and um, and he was really helpful. He was kind of the light, a bit of a dying art in in, in mm. that industry in Australia. So, yeah, he he helped me to um, really transform this kind of idea into a into a pattern. And then we took that. I took that back to the foundry, and they cast me a couple, and and that's where it really started. So yeah, from there I um I actually won a design award for that. Bombay Sapphire, which does isn't around anymore, but back then I remember that. was a major design award, and yeah. and it was a real kickstart. It was thirty grand back then, and I won the last one. And it's actually real. It's really sad that it hasn't filled in with something else of that nature because that that award has has kickstarted a lot of um, a lot of careers actually in, in Australian design, and that gave me the money to pay for the tooling. You know, the, the tooling for that product cost probably fifteen grand back then, and I I took that money and, and put it into the tooling. Um, and that's you know that that helped me to to be able to manufacture it at a, mm. at a lower price, and then I did the tables, and you know that spun off different versions, and you you actually got one of the first of the A joint stretches, which is the larger kind of uh, designed for boardrooms and mm. um, and uh, larger format tables. Okay, well. Talk about your childhood, if you can. How far back we're going to go? I'm just interested in how you, because we kind of jumped straight away into Holland. Um, I'm kind of in, intrigued about how you how you grew up, like yeah. what inspired you to become designer in the first place. You know, what was your childhood like? Yeah, look, it's very. I think it's um, you hear this sort of trope look sort of wheeled out, but it's it's kind of true. You know, I was one of those kids who just loved to muck around, pulling things apart. Um, very active mind, very active um, hands, and I was always sort of you know, pull, pulling things apart, not putting them back together, or when I did, you know, trying to hot rod my BMX or whatever it was I was trying to do at the time. And that was always, um, you know, that, that fed into just a knowledge on how things went together and a constant desire to make them a bit better or customise them or tweak them. And, um, yeah, my, my parents were good enough to foster that in me and um, and really, yeah, promoted that kind of, that side of... It was actually my mother who suggested I go and, and study... Um, uh, woodwork at ANU when they when that when the art school and ANU were together it was as one they actually mm. had a course that was woodwork which was like 
going to university to do design and technology, which was certainly my dream. Um, so, and I probably a lot of other kids dream. So yeah, I was, I thank them for being so, um, yeah, for really pushing me in that direction. Were they creative in any way? Uh, my mum's an architect and, and she really stopped when I was born in sort of in the eighties. So she, she didn't really have a huge career and my, my father's a doctor and, and they're, they're both creative in, in their own ways. I mean, it, it, like you sort of say, you know, designing your life, they, they were certainly doing that in their own ways um, mm-hmm. and still are. And I think they approach everything even in their own lives as quite creatively. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, whilst not really necessarily part of, you know, in the concrete structure, they, they certainly have an inquisitive uh, view on life. Yeah, would they, do they love furniture? Do they, do they kind of collect... Eames, <laughs> classic designers, or what it's was it? What was your home like? You know, they used because you've got to, impeccable taste. Uh, like they had beautiful things when I was growing up, um, but they sort of had things when they were when they lived. They lived in England for a long time, and they had them kind of before they were cool. So there's all mm. these there's there's odd little finds as you go around that you sort of see. You know, as you say, the odd Eames chair or something like that. But I think that that love for me of furniture that I fostered um, really myself. They mm-hmm. they had a. My, my mother's a collector of Australian female artists and she has other oh, cool. other, other other collections of things. And um, my dad's mad keen on sailing and he, you know, so probably there's a, there's probably a bit of a mashup there with his, you know, my, my mother's love for the fine arts and my dad's love for the mechanical objects mm. and sailing things. I mean, there's probably a bit of influence in there. Mm. Coming down to the studio the other day, I noticed your, the Laker shelving system you guys have done together. What's it called? Continental Shelf. Continental Shelf. That's a great name too. Mm. I noticed there's a lot of kind of hooks and you know rings and all kinds of knickknacks hanging from it. I kind of it felt a bit like a, there's some kind of sailing boat kind of trinkets and stuff like that. But yeah. it's like it's those objects. It's like they're they're beautiful, aren't they? In their own right, it's like your incense burner or you know the a joint and other things that you've created. I'm a big believer in objects having kind of a personality that is often imbued by the designer, but it's also it's inherent in the manufacturing and the use. And, you know, a lot of those objects you would have seen on the Laker board are things that, um, you know, that, that David and I have picked up along the way and they have some kind of, you know, I- intrinsic use to them that maybe you can't grapple with or you're trying to understand why the sh- how the shape dictates the use or the other way around. And, and I think that that's all, um, you know, it's important to keep, looking and inquiring on those kind of things and, mm. and wondering because, you know, that's really the root of all the ideas. Yeah, it's nice to... There's, like in London, I'd go to a lot of friends' studios and they'd have, you know, walls of things. I'm, I've got tons of books and objects and things that I've in boxes and storage and all that. But there's people... Go to people's houses and, and the other designers, product designers or graphic designers or whoever, architects, and their house would be full. Be, be like, beautifully kind of um, curated in a way. It's like, you know, the life of collecting things that they like and there are often things that are I mean could be kids toys and things like that but it's this kind of a really cool kind of collection of things I don't see that very much here coming into your studio the other day I really it stood out for me that there's the, the, the love of things the love of materials the love of objects or not disposable things but things that are designed with with, with you know beautiful accuracy and are designed to last and are precious in a way yeah, and, and that look, that's a, and I speak for my own practice and I think probably many other industrial designers and, and designers of all sorts. Um, you know, I sort of 
meant to have made a joke about chefs, but you know, there's we're just picking up ideas all the time and trying. You know, it, it's it's a rehash. You know, constantly mm. we're, you're remixing concepts you found somewhere else, and you're trying to work them into a you know into a new a new way of looking at something or a new production method. And it's it's a game of that sort of um, you know appropriating these things. Mm. So does that mean you're very selective about what you do? collect and what you do have yeah i mean it has to you, you can't just go on and on but there's there's certain it's not like there's a for me there's it has to have some sort of inquiry into it you know i, I like i like that you know some of these objects you pick them up and they're sculptural but then you find out you know it's a kind of a, you know it's a restrictor or a figure of eight for rock climbing or abseiling for mm. instance you know that 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 form is so beautiful it's sort of you know, it could it could be a sculpture blown up to two hundred percent. It could be this mm-hmm. incredible sculpture, and yet it's it's functional. And these eyelets and this shape and the way that the rope goes around it is is, is couldn't be any other way for, for for the restrictor on a on an abseiling kit. Yeah. And that to me, I, I love that that you can that there's this there's this whole story behind the form. Yeah. Yeah. What designers do you admire? Like, is it changed, and has it changed over time since you were at design school? Yeah, it certainly has, and it's um, uh, look, it's one of those things. I actually think that that's a kind of a, a, a really good interview question for a, you know a job applicant. Like, who, who do you desire? What kind of you know? Do? Um, <laughs> but the yeah the the designers that I admire are um, have changed over the time, and it's uh, you know at the beginning it was all about this kind of. Um, Scandinavian cleverness and all this kind of uh, mm. you know blonde wood and and um, and that's matured and and now I I really um, respond to the the designers of the sort of post-war Italian design movements from uh, Castiglione brothers to um, Magistretti the, the, there's a there's a whole canon of designers in there Giaponti and one of the things that um, you know I've, I was, I've often talked about this in the studio. I don't know, and I don't know whether it's a, if it's a positive or a negative on Australia's design, um, cap- or you know manufacturing capabilities. Is I always say, you know, we're we're kind of in Australia. We're at that level. You know, the 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 product that we manufacture isn't isn't necessarily very technical because mm-hmm. we don't have a huge amount of resources for technical products in Australia. So we're sort of designing around this kind of, um, uh, you know, um, the capabilities of. Of Italy in post-war, mm. <laughs> post-war production me- yeah. me- methods, and um, there's still so much to do there, and they're really they are actually there's a reason why those products are so um, have lasted the the time the, you know, the test of time. We still you know, crave them; they still sell well in, in international collections, and it's because they are they have an incredible honesty to them. Mm. They're put together thoughtfully, um, and they they have a they have a little there's something in, in, in especially in that Italian post-war era that they, they almost had a little sort of jokiness to them. Yeah, they have a playfulness. Yeah, that, that really, um, you know, you, you actually get a little bit of that designer's kind of um, mm. uh, character in, in the product. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because I, I was thinking while you were talking about you know, look at, looking at your website again last night. Um, <laughs> it's like design, well, I mean, it's very very like beautiful objects and I guess I kind of look at it and go is that industrial design because it's kind of they're almost like sculptures aren't they the, the light I bought the other day and the 
incense burner and the paperweight, oh, not the paperweight, the, um, the bookend. Yeah. Like they're just beautiful things, and I, I just don't I don't see them as industrial design. So maybe I, I don't want to offend you by saying that, but I feel like they. It's interesting because you talked about the Italian uh, influence as well, and I, and I do I do definitely feel that that the beautiful marble light, you know, the brass incense is it brass or copper uh, incense burn? Uh, bronze, yeah, bronze, yeah. I mean, they're just the weight and the simplicity of them, and the, how light kind of captures it beautifully and shadows and all that just like it go is is that industrial design yeah like i see industrial design as being more like more commercial i guess yeah look it's a it's a balance and and i probably err on that on in that range of products on the more um you know sculptural kind of spectrum of of design um and you know the the use of those things you know they're meant to be sort of suggested uses they're meant to be um, you know, the vid posh, which is for your coins or your phone or whatever you want to put in it. You could put incense in it if you wanted to. You know, th- these kind of things are just, they're just meant to be sort of suggestions for daily life and uses. And, you know, the bookend that you bought is, 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 a, is a similar object like that. It's sort of, you know, I, I have one sitting around the house and it's, you know, it's not holding up any books. It's just sort of sitting there as, mm. a, as an object. And I, as, as you say, I like the way that the form is and the heft and that brilliant bronze, you know, kind of patina. And... I, I like that sort of ambiguity in that, mm. and but they're certainly, that you know, they're they're products with a with a function, and and that's sort of how I've always defined industrial design or design as mm. as opposed to fine art. But which, you know, where do they come from, though? Where, like, I'm just going to make this thing to have put coins in, or what? <laughs> what, what, what? I need to do. A, I need a book in, so I'm going to design one. How do, how do they come about? Because um, it looks like you've done a lot lately too. Because I remember just seeing the A joint, and now I see. There's dozens of products. Yeah, so the A joint was the first foray, like foray into into casting, and that gave me an opportunity to do, to really get to know the process of sand casting, and it also is a manufacturing technique that, you know, sometimes we're just bound by what we get to know and what we work with a lot, and having a manufacturer, that's why manufacturing is so important. Having a really good manufacturer, um, you know, spurs you on to do things, and I've been really lucky that. You know, have, having found that manufacturer in Australia who's keen to try new things and do new products, he he initially was the one that pushed me into um into you know experimenting beyond the A joint. So mm-hmm. it's sort of and then and then that began to flow as a kind of you know, oh, well, the the vid posh for instance came from I, I had a French girlfriend and, and she kept yelling at me. You know, I'd say where's where are my keys? And she said they're in the vid posh. And I thought what the fuck is a vid posh? You didn't speak. In, I, I, I can understand. She's like, she would revert back to French when she was, uh, you know, angry or, or in, a, in, a, in a kind of half. And, and you know, eventually... Was that often? That, yeah, quite often. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'd, uh, we'd, yeah, I, I've, I've learned vid posh very quickly, which translates as, as empty pockets. And um, ah, this concept is that you, cool. you just, you, you empty your day at the door and then, you know, that that's where you put it. And I thought, oh, that's a lovely kind of concept. And that then grew into a um, range of dishes. But, that, you know, at the beginning, that was just... You know, it was it was my little kind of love letter to my girlfriend. Those those early things, they were just little kind of um, playful objects. And but that I didn't realize how um, a people would respond to them, and b how they would grow um, to become mm. you know ranges in their own right. And have they been successful? Have you have you? I noticed you got your own website and all the products are on there. Is that the only place people can buy your products? Yeah. So I look in in Australia, yes, to sell them through the website. 
Um, and there's a few little retailers around as well where in, in certain states, but mostly online. And, and you know, I, I just make that more so that we can control um, where they go. And, and I like the experience of, you know, if, if someone doesn't like it, we just send it back and we'll give you a refund. It's not, I don't, I don't sort of want to create a real, um, you know, it, 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 uh, sort of, that's, that wasn't the goal to sort of set it up as a business, but it just makes sense to do that now. Mm. And, and then there are other objects which are more commercial, like the door hardware, the handles, the A-joints. Some, mm. some of the lighting is more commercial than some of the more sculptural lighting. So there is kind of that arm to it as well, where probably the most of the, the larger scale projects come from. I can't imagine how much it would cost to sell a, send a 10-kilogram uh, bookend. Yeah, to <laughs> New York or London or something. Yeah, no, they're um, yeah, they're not they're not cheap to send around. But we do we have uh, wholesalers in the states and um, in Europe, and they're growing. That's a growing mm. um, uh, market. Certainly, um, getting up there with the, with Australia. You know. What do you feel about? I, and I was looking at the Shapiro um, website the other day. They do auctions of kind of twenty first century. You know furniture and art etc and i saw a, a series of your products in there what did what did you feel have you, were you aware of that yeah <laughs> but what do you feel about that are you flattered by the fact that it's 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 elevated to that i mean that's pretty discerning kind of i guess auctioneer yeah so um i actually know um shapiro uh have and have had stuff in there from collections in the past and you know that product in there is actually there was two things in that in that auction that I put in ah. um, because we had, um, you know, we had discontinued something or there was a particular stone we couldn't get hold of anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, rather than sort of trying to sell them online, I'll go I'll put, the, put that in the auction and then that way it can... But we've had, you know, things pop up online and actually what's quite nice is that there is... Um, it, is to see some of the prices at the auction go for more than I actually sell them for, mm. um, you know, online. And I think that might be because Shapiro have a broader audience maybe to overseas yeah. and things like that. So, yeah, it's kind of um, <laughs> makes you think maybe you should put things up a little bit. Well, I just as I said before, I kind of just loved all of your, I guess, household objects. And this series um, from Lego to Skyscrapers is about, you know, architects and designers working in, I guess, the big built environment, places, homes, etc., and, you know, your, your objects are uh, designed for a home and, I guess, certain discerning taste that it, it works in certain environments better than others, I guess. I've got a, quite a few things at my house. So I've got the A-joint a, a tables here, but I'm starting to collect some stuff in my, in my house, which I really love. And, I, and I, you know, it's, I'm a, it sounds ridiculous, and I'm, um, but to see, you know, your light sitting there every morning when I wake up or burning incense a couple times a day the process of holding that object i don't know first i guess for a certain kind of type of person who appreciates that it's magical yeah know? look i think that use the use of a product is um you know it's something that you have to consider I and mean, this was um a big part of the oil burner actually i'm not sure if you know that product yeah. that um i designed for esop um that was you know took three years in development and so much of that product was about the ritual of lighting a uh, you know a tea light and putting it into this vessel dripping the oil into the reservoir then using you know waiting for it to warm up slowly and then you know the the scent that that diffused through the day and, and a lot of people uh 
you know, I was mindful that this would be, you know, a sort of um, a, a really, you know, a process to work or to home or relaxation or something that they did that was almost kind of cathartic or meditative. And, you know, that and that is certainly something that you try to consider, I think, or you mm. should try to consider when, when in these objects that there, there's touch points there that are little sort of quirks and, and, and thoughts that the designers put in. Uh, mm. And that, that flows through, as I was sort of saying before, so some of that Italian, um, you know, post-war furniture, you, when you understand it, it kind of unlocks another level. You think, oh, God, that's actually, they thought of that. Or, mm. Yeah, it's kind of cute, yeah. How long have you been designing for now? Um, well, I don't know. I suppose it's uh, commercially probably 10 years. Mm. Um, but, you know, I've, I haven't done anything really um, for work since um, I was at uni. So... Uh, you know, and that was 2001. So in terms of, what, in terms of commissions from clients? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would work, but you know, in, in terms of just my, my main source of income, you know, it was either working in bars and restaurants and or designing things. And they, those things would, would either be for, for university or, you know, if someone would buy something, mm. it would be great to be able to, you know, sell it. And there were a few, a few little early, early benefactors who bought things along the way. Well, that's interesting. So do you do commissions now? Uh, so obviously you guys are working separately and also together, is that right? Yeah, so David and I have um, have Laker as well, but we, you know, the commission thing is, I suppose the the Aesop oil burner was a, was a commission product, and and there is, you know, th- those things will will happen from time to time, but I don't do the kind of commissions um, that you might see from um, I don't know the, the kind of. Uh, you know, Trent Jansen or Adam Adam Goodrum, I think, does a lot of these kind of you know, um, mm. you know one-off tables and things like that, which I haven't. And I, not to say that you know that wouldn't be something I'd like to do, but it's it's not been been the kind of thrust of the business. Yeah, I regret when I, I called you up. I was I was uh, I thought an a a joint table in my garden would be great, and you just said <laughs> they're not made for outdoors. <laughs> I said, well, could you put zinc wrap around it? No. <laughs> I was like, "Whoa, caught you on a bad day," but you're very clearly, you very clearly know what you like and don't like, and you know what's going to work. Oh, I'm sorry about <laughs> or are you sorry, working you on might, one? You might have caught me at a bad time. <laughs> yeah, um, no, look, it wasn't a. There was, um, yeah, look, there's, there's things, certainly things for certain places. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe an outdoor table will be in the in the works. <laughs> well, I was just going to talk also about the. We we're talking about the home earlier too, just around. Uh, how important it is for you, your home, because your home's part of your studio as well. And then you're designing literally the bulk of the objects that are in your home. I know you got some other great stuff as well that you've collected, but it's a really cool kind of fusion of all those things. Where does that come from? What, 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 how does that make you feel? And you know, why is it so important for you to get uh, that right? Yeah, look, I think the, this place is really the most you know, they have just having finished it is the most polished kind of place I've lived in last you know, ever, really. And it sort of had suddenly made me feel quite grown up um, mm. to sort of have such a kind of, um, you know, resolved home. Uh, and it has given a place for all these objects and things that I've designed. But there's a one of the things that I'm always, um, you know, reflecting on and, and, and same with, with David and when we're working together is the litmus test is would I buy this? Is this something that I want in my own home? And and that is something that I, I'll stand by. You know, there there is, and that's you know why I live with a lot of the objects. And 
you know, a lot of the Laker prototypes we kind of, you know, use every day and try out. And we, you know, we have the shelve, the first range of shelving in, in the studio and actually also in my house. Um, and, you know, I get a, I think, I think it's important to just sort of do that, live with them, try them. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I think it's a, it's something at some point I'm sure there's designers out there who couldn't possibly live with everything they make because it's so vast and broad and all the different things. But at this stage, you know, it is really, it's really important. Mm. That's cool. And let's just kind of talk about you guys set up uh, the studio Laker or Laker Studio together. Mm. How did you guys meet? I think we David. met at a uh, we met at an event, uh, didn't we? Uh, yeah, it was um, it was <laughs> a, it was one of these sort of branded um, whiskey events. Speed dating. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> lovely. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize. Okay, sorry, you should have mentioned that. Um, wow, so like a object gallery type thing. No, it was a whiskey type thing. <laughs> but you knew you knew of each other, knew of each other before. Uh, yeah, I was I was certainly aware of Henry's work uh, before we met, because um, um, I think it was only about six or seven years ago. Um, yeah. So I, I'd I'd seen the A join and a couple of other products, and um, I'm not sure if I'd even maybe even specified it, but um, yeah, we had we we I, I was aware of the work, and um, and yeah, we met and we just hit it off straight away. A lot of common interests, obviously, even though the, the way that we work and the type of work we do is quite different. Yeah. Well, and David, it's so cool catching up with you today as well. Obviously, I heard about you when you were working with Mark Newson mm. uh, in London. Paris. Or Paris, sorry. Yeah. And you've had a really interesting journey around the world. Can we just talk about it? How did it all start out for you? Um, well, um, similar to similar to Henry, I guess, and a lot of designers, I was... I was I was also one of those kids that was just very, um, very busy creating stuff all the time. You know, um, lived up in the Adelaide Hills, well, in the Adelaide foothills, and so you know, would run around the hills all the time, making little go karts or, you know, somewhere to hang out with my friends or something to slide down the hill in. Or so I was always, you know, my own skateboards, my own skate ramps, cool. and all that sort of stuff like that. And then I ignored all of that and went and studied economics. And then wow. I, f- I failed that. <laughs> what led you to do that? Um, I, I think just not being clear about what I wanted to mm. do. Um, it, was, it was quite strange. I spent a year doing that and then um, you know, I realised that I could sort of jump across to industrial design. And once I did, that's when I kind of really mm. came out of my skin or came out of my shell a little bit in a way. And I felt like I'd finally found what I wanted to do. Um and once I uh, once I graduated, I um, I was going to go overseas to um, study automotive design because I'm, I'm very passionate about transport, mm-hmm. cars, and that kind of thing. Like a lot of kids who were studying industrial design, um, and so uh, I was accepted to a school in Coventry, and um, I couldn't wait, so I just left and went over to Europe a few months before, and um, I made it to Coventry eventually, but uh, after a couple of weeks I left, I, I just realised that I didn't want to narrow my focus that much into, into you know, just designing one type of thing. And then I, I just started working in different studios, in, firstly in Italy and then um, in, in France at Mark's office. And that was about seven years of my life and then I came back to Australia. Oh, God, you made that sound so simple. <laughs> but how the hell did you get into um, George Salden? Is that how you say his name? Uh, George Salden, yeah. How did you get in there in the first place? That was Just pictures uh, of your go-kart and stuff. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I had a portfolio. It wasn't great. 
um, but I did have a portfolio together when I when I left Australia, and I went and worked originally. I went and worked at Mondadori uh, in the graphic design offices of Mondadori, which is the very big publishing house in in oh, Italy yeah. that was uh, owned by Silvio Berlusconi, the old um, uh, president of um, president prime minister. I think president of uh, of Italy. Wow! And uh, I was there for a while. And what designing books? No websites. Really? Uh, yeah. Um, wow. Just doing doing the graphics mainly, not the coding or anything like that. So I did that for a while, and then after about six or seven months of that, and really just partying um, and just being, you know, for the first time away from home. Um, you know, up to my own devices in in, in Milan, I um, wow. I decided that it was time to sort of get back to where I was uh, where I was originally originally headed, and I um, I literally answered an ad in um, I forget what it was like one of the design websites that was going back then. It was that long ago, and um, went in and had an interview and got the job, and uh, and that's when things really sort of took a took a positive turn in my career because George was very, he was very um, proactive about the design community in, in Milan. So um, he made sure that I connected with people that were closer to my generation and mm. he connected me with Yetzi Seymour who I eventually ended up working with as well. Um, but with George, you, you always had people coming through the studio like, um, you know, Mendini and Sotsas and wow. those kind of designers. Got his book over there, yeah. Sotsas. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, parties and that kind of stuff like that. And, and at that time, I'm not sure if it's the same now, but at that time certainly that design community in Milan was a very tight-knit community. Mm. And, you know, if, if once, once you got in it some, somewhat... Um, you really did meet a lot of people. You had a lot of fun, and people were very, on the whole, were very encouraging. Um, another designer that was very influential for me was a, a guy called James Irvine, um, who sadly passed away a few years ago, um, way before his time. Um, mm. And James was a great connector. You know, used to make sure that everybody was invited down. You know, from, you know, the top of the top down to the little shit kickers like me, um, made sure that everyone was included. And, um, and that really was the spirit of, of Milan those days. I mean, I, yeah, I partied a lot. <laughs> <laughs> not in a bad way. I socialised a lot. Let's say socialised. Well, you must speak, speak the language then. I do. My family's Italian. So oh, okay. I never had visa problems or anything like oh, that. Okay. So what kind of projects did you work on when you were there? Um, with George, I worked on, a, you know, some furniture, some homewares, um, he had a big commission with Tefal at the time, um, a couple of chairs. We worked for Steelcase, I think. We worked for Sedges. We worked for a number of brands. Um, and then with Yurtzi, it was much more the artistic stuff, uh, gallery stuff um, that he did, as well as working with uh, probably one of my favourite brands, um, an Italian company called Magis. Um, and it's through, it's through all of that, through Yurtzi, that eventually I met Mark. Uh, on a ski trip and um, went mm. and worked for him and and worked with all the brands that um, that he works with. So um, was that a hard move, or was that had he done your time at, with um, George? I got fired from George because, yeah. <laughs> as I said, I went out a lot. Oh Jesus! <laughs> so I got what I deserved, uh, but we remained <laughs> we remained on really good terms, and you know he was always very supportive. Um, 
But, um, yeah, no, it, it wasn't a hard move. I was in Milan for another year after finishing up with George and then um, just working with Yurtsy on some of the exhibitions. And that's when I probably got my first exposure to Paris. We did mm-hmm. a show at Gallery Creo, which is probably one of the um, great design editors uh, in the world still today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they've brought a lot of designers to the, to the forefront. Mm. And so we did a, we did a show for them. Um, drove over to Paris, set up the show, came back, and I, I fell in love with the city. Um, and then I, I, I but I, I needed to get a, a job, um, mm-hmm. and so I, I emailed Mark, and um, over I went. And he, he responded. He did. Wow. Yes. Yeah. You're he, lucky. Said, he said, "Come over and have an interview." And uh, yeah, it was good timing, like a lot of these things are. It was, yeah. it was really good timing, right place, right time. I had the right skill set. Um, and somebody was leaving, and um, he needed somebody. Was he based in Paris and London at the time? Was he going across? The yeah, yeah, ninety percent in Paris at the oh, time. Okay. There was still uh, there was still an office in in London, um, but all the design work was being done in Paris. And what, what was it like working with Mark? Because he's obviously an incredible, yeah, designer and amazing reputation. Oh, it was it was great. It was a bit of a dream come true for me. I idolised his work uh, while I was at uni. Because mm. um, he's from Sydney too, right? Yeah, he is. I'm not, but he, oh, he yeah, is. No. Yeah. Okay. Australian. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd look close. I'd look, you know, watch his work closely. And that's part of the – was one of the reasons why I um, abandoned the car design um, school because I, I thought, well, you know, um, you know Mark, Mark Newsom went and done the um, 021C for Ford as a concept car mm. and – I don't see why I need to spend another two years studying to do a concept car at some point. Yeah. Um, and so... Um, That's the one with the drawer out the back, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of cool ideas in that car. Brilliant. Tiny little thing, if you've ever seen it in the flesh. It's no, I've never... Did you actually build it? Oh, yeah, there's, there's, um, there's, there's one that kicks around. Yeah, there is. It goes from exhibition to exhibition. It's, it's either orange or green, depending on what colour they have it in. But, mm. um, yeah, great little concept. And so... Um, but working with him, you know, in initially was uh, daunting. Um, I mean, I'd socialised with him a bit, but I, um, you know, I, I knew what I was getting myself into. I knew the calibre of... He's a party animal too, isn't he? He can party. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good combo. So yeah, how long were you there for? Well, uh, in that office, I was there for nearly four years. and You, um, did, you didn't get fired? No, I didn't get fired. Okay, good. No, no I, st- I pulled myself together. And uh, you worked on Qantas as well? Yeah, yeah. Qantas was probably the biggest commission that, um, well, you know, at, at any given point, it was probably the biggest commission in the office because we were doing the A380 at the time. And mm. That was a bit of a blank slate brief. So um, there was constantly work to, to do on, on different areas. And, and um, you know, I was, I was running certain projects within that project. So it was, you know, a lot of responsibility. It was certainly... Fry pan into fire. Um, my first couple of months there, for sure. Yeah, there was that thing of waking up on a Saturday morning and going into work because you felt guilty not to be in there, and you yeah. know other people are in there. Got to get in there oh, on a Saturday. Yeah, for <coughs> sure. Mm. It's interesting because we we were I can't remember the year it was, but we refreshed Qantas's brand and uh, worked. We came over to to London to meet Mark and the team. Yeah. And talk about the kind of the, the patterns, the menus, the what what he was doing with the interior of the planes and yeah. stuff. It was so cool. And yeah. then the and then the um, lounges. Sorry. Yeah. And then and, and then talking about the lounges too, and the kind of the menus and the communications around that, and check-in systems and all that. But it was really 
God, it was really incredible to have a conversation with him and meet up with him and the team. Yeah. I think um, that was probably after I'd already moved back to Sydney. I think it might have been. I continued to work with him back here for on and off um, for different projects and, and things like that, which was, which was cool, I guess, once you've been working with someone for a while, you're able to do that. It's not, I guess, it's how, how many people kind of steal uh, the cutlery from a plane? I mean, I <laughs> always managed to take something with me every yeah. time I flew. A lot. Does that happen a lot? Yeah. And you've designed a range since yeah. you left, right? Yeah, so I, I designed the next range to follow Mark's. And, um, yeah, there's a fair bit of, um, I think they call it burn. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's super cool. Um, how important is a design for wellness when you're designing, like, uh, for interior of an airplane and, you know, lounges, et cetera, seats? Yeah. It's in the last couple of years, in the last few years, it's become probably the top priority, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and certainly this last phase, I mean, I haven't designed any seats since COVID happened, um, but um, I think it's only going to get more and more important. Before that, it was more about a passenger's wellness after they get to the, you know, the end of the destination or just not feeling, you know, awful when you get off the plane, uh, feeling rested and, and being mm. able to get on with your day and all of that sort of stuff was much more important. You know, the focus shifting away from free alcohol and shifting towards, you know, things like, you know, waters and and, and um, stretching areas and those kind of things. So in terms of critically important, it's, it's right up there with safety, I think, now. And sustainability, I guess, every piece of design you do on a plane would be, weight would be a major consideration, wouldn't it? Weight's, a, uh, yeah, tremendous consideration because of the effect it has on fuel, mm-hmm. fuel burn. Um, and sustainability is something that in aviation is, is, is becoming more important. It's always been difficult because introducing new materials into that life cycle or that testing regime is, is, is hard. It's mm. very hard um, and takes a long time. So, but yeah, the, the the initial way in which we can tackle the sustainability in, in aerospace is is through reducing weight and making aircraft more efficient. And who would be the client in that kind of situation? Because I imagine there'd be a lot of people involved mm. in such an important project like that, like all kinds of scientists and data people. Yeah, there, economics. there are. There are. I mean, a lot of that stuff happens at different phases of the project. So, you know, you know, Establishing a brief is not um, is not really a series of dot points. It's it's there's a huge amount of business case study. There's a huge amount of um, environmental study and 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 I guess what we call a LOPA study, which is uh, establishing the layout of the aircraft, and then you start working. Um, so you know sometimes even establishing the brief can take eighteen months, two mm-hmm. years, something like I that. Can imagine, um, but you know my client is is the airline and mm-hmm. and the airline's passengers. Um, sort of quite directly, there's a lot of focus groups um, that that um, we have to um, we have to pay close attention to. Um, so yes, but within that client pool, there's a lot of people that um, that have to sign off on things mm-hmm. and, and be across what's happening on a day to day basis. And did you ever get in a plane once it's been all kitted out and go? Damn it! I didn't. I should have done this. Or all the time. I should have had one of Henry's incense burners in here. And <laughs> incense burner on a plane. <laughs> Tough call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those days are gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it happens all the time. Sure, because um, you just don't tell the client that, of course. No, no. I think it's it's important to identify when 
when somebody's done something that that you admire, and it's the same in design as well. I mean, I, I admired other designers' work, and um, yeah, I think I'm, my ego's not that big that I'm you know going to go everything that I do is the best. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly think that's a, that's an important trait to have to sort of be curious about what other people are doing. Um, yeah, for sure. It's uh, otherwise you're you know you're not going to really go forward that well. It's kind of one of the traps of being an industrial designer is you never you never resting because everything is becomes an analysis. It's exhausting actually. Yeah, mm. you're sitting in there going. Oh, yeah, you can't actually enjoy them. Talk about in- <laughs> Zen, enjoying the moment. Yeah. You know, designer's life is just constantly trying to interrogate the object. Yeah, <laughs> no. The the other thing I you have to be to the other thing you have to be mindful of as well in 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 that in that aviation world is, you know, um, when something appears on a plane, uh, the design was locked in five years ago. Like the, that's true. The concept to wow. you know, to realization time it's is long time. quite long between the initial concept to getting it through testing. By the time you get through the testing, you've probably changed your mind, but it's too late to go back. You've got to stick with what you did and that's you know, so that we can ensure safety and all of those things. Um, Are they locked in for a long period of time then? Just keep rolling that out or does it t- is there an opportunity to keep evolving it? There's opportunity to keep evolving it for sure. So, um, but it's always just five years behind. Oh, it's not five. Like it depends. It depends on the program. So five years is probably worst case scenario. But um, you know, some you know, but best case is you know maybe two years. So um, yeah, it does. It does. There is quite a long sort of. But that's actually with any project. I mean, I've it takes five years to design a chair a lot of the time. So mm. it's um, people are a bit surprised how long it takes to develop product get it through the manufacturing process and get it in a, in a position where you can sell it. What other designers were you inspired by or do you look up to now? Well, I'm... Apart I'm, from Henry. I'm very much in the, same, in the same sort of spot as Henry in terms of I've always loved those post-war Italian designers. Mm-hmm. I, in, at university, I loved Joe Colombo and, um, and uh, Bellini and... I just their their innovation with those materials that at the time were new plastics that we now kind of you know are a bit of a dirty word because of their effect on the environment or their their recyclability or lack of recyclability. But what they were doing back there is you know was was real innovations and, and it's amazing still how many of those products are still you know that I still want and that I can still buy um, and you know so they were. They're not that recyclable, but they don't, they're not thrown away either. So I, I just loved the sort of, I don't want to say glamour, but um, I don't know, there was something really, there was an aura around those products mm. back then. Um, so, yeah, definitely those, um, those Italian designers. And that's probably what drove me to go to Milan because, you know, looking at the books that I was looking at when I was in university, was, that's where it was all happening. Um, mm. There was also something of a... Um there was something of a joy behind it all. Like there was mm. this, in, there was this optimism of the future, mm. which I think is one of the things that you get caught up in, in, in when you start looking at that Italian design. It's mm. like you can't help but want to be in that lounge with that Joe Colombo chair and mm. that Castiglione Brion Vega stereo. Like you just, yeah. you kind of, you know, there's there's something something optimistic about the mm. their view on the future. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of. I actually look at a lot of architects as well. And, you know, some great English architects that I really admire their work, um, like, you know, Chipperfield and, and, um, and um, what's his name, Richard Rogers. Um, 
I, I, I don't know why I'm kind of inspired by, by their work in, in the work that I do, probably because I, I, my work also goes into the built environment a fair bit with some interiors and, and, and that kind of um, and that kind of work. But um, I, I suppose there's a, there's a few Japanese designers that I'm really into and I'm into Japan as a place. Mm. It's probably the one place I've visited as much or, you know, um, yeah, easily as much as I've gone to Italy, just not, yeah. for, as, not, not for years on end. Spectacular place. Yeah. <clears throat> if anyone listening in is going to contact for David Chipperfield and Richard Rogers, um, please let us know because I actually was on a list today to, con- to try to find someone to contact them to do an interview. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> have you got his got, got contact details? I don't. I, uh, <laughs> one of the one of the most uh, one of the more interesting studio visits that I did was David Chipperfield's. Were you with me? Did we? Was it during the? I think you were. No, maybe not. We went to during the Milan Salone. He opened up his Milan studio, oh, yeah, and he does everything with little um, maquettes, like little uh, ah. scale models, even of interiors. Wow. And it was just fascinating to walk around and have a look, you know, and the studio was like, it was like a laboratory, and I love that. Um, my studios have never been like a laboratory. They've been more like a ramshackle, you know, collection of samples and desks and computer screens, but I uh, was blown away by when studios get to that scale yeah. and are so well managed and so well organised. I, I and the momentum around that. Yeah, I just take my hat off. I think it's fantastic. What was the... How did you know when it was right to do your own thing? Come back, so come back to Australia, for example. Yeah, because that that was a big move. Same with you, Henry. You came back eventually. Yeah. Like, when did you guys know it was the right time to come back home and focus on your own personal brands? For me, it was a question of um, you know where I wanted to spend the rest of my life because I knew that if that was still a question for me, then I would regardless of what I did I wouldn't necessarily be happy in my work mm-hmm. so I I wanted to I wanted to come back having enough time to start something and, uh, and having it grow mm. um, and so I came back when I was 29 just before I turned 30 mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah once I came back I spent a couple of years sort of you know working for various other you know, architectural practices and and studios and things like that, but pretty quickly I realised that I, I I really liked what I had in Paris, in Mark's office, for example, or in George's office. There were smaller scale businesses that were very focused on creative and the person running the office was the head creative, whereas, you know, in architectural practices it's a bit different. The mm. more senior you get, the less you design, mm. and I, I didn't like that. I didn't appreciate mm. that. Um, I understand it a bit more now. Um, having run a business for sort of 10 plus years, but um, I didn't want to go in that direction. So at that point I decided that the only thing I could do, you know, given that my skill base was a little bit strange for where we are, um, that I had to go out on my own and try to find my own clients. And how long did that last before you met Henry or decided to do Laker together? Lake is probably only a couple of years old, really, or as a collaboration, it's it's a few years old. But as yeah, a business, we've been talking about it for a while, yeah. just I, just ideas. But most of the time, it's been um, uh, you know it's been difficult because both having our own practices, it's quite hard to get together and actually do something new. Mm. Um, but we did, we did that, and then obviously with the with the pandemic and this whole um, you know the a big thrust of of David's work was you know, 
cleared out through, yeah. through that. So there was a sort of renewed energy there to go, oh, well, look, this is, you're going to take some timing. This is a, this is the best time. So, yeah, we, um, we kind of lent into it a little bit more earnestly. Also, well, being in the same space has made a big difference. Um, you know, previously, if we were going to catch up, talk about something, it was at a bar or at one of our studios. And mm-hmm. neither of those are really conducive spaces. You know, when you've got your own space that you're both there and you're both supposed to be there, it means that everything gets a lot more momentum. So, mm. you know, last year we last year we really just got the shelf out and this year we're, you know, we're already five or six products in. So it's, you know, it, it's... And it needs a bit more momentum, and it, and it has a bit more momentum now. So it's, um, yeah, it's starting to get quite exciting. Because so, I was confused when I first saw, you know, a Lakers studio. Hang on, let's talk. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Yeah. You mentioned the other day how the Laker name came about. Can you just tell everybody? Yeah. Um, well, we were throwing names around for a while. Um, we couldn't really settle on anything. And um, we knew that it had to be a name. Henry was pretty sure that it needed to be five letters. Um, we didn't want it to be either of our names or... Or Frost. Yeah, no, we didn't Frost want... Frost was taken. <laughs> Frost was taken. <laughs> we didn't want Wilson and Kayon. We didn't want to sound like a yeah. country band. Um, so uh, I was chatting to my, uh, my father-in-law and um, I was telling him that I was on my way to Mallorca soon for a... Um, for, a for Kelvin's wedding, uh, previous guest of this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, brilliant. Um, and... He said, oh, he said, I used to go to Mallorca. I used to fly Laker Airlines there. And I'd never heard of Laker Airlines. And um, it was, he explained to me that it was probably one of the early sort of low-cost carrier-type setups that was flying, I think, from Catwick to Mallorca for the holiday makers. Mm. And I looked up the branding, and it was super cool. Like, it just made sense. Mm-hmm. And we didn't copy the branding, obviously, but it certainly inspired the name. Mm. Um, and you know it made made sense with the fit into the five letter rule, and um, we we're yeah. both we we're both going to Mallorca, so we yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> oh gee, yeah. just so have it. We just we may as well make it this name. Yeah. And I also think that I mean you're you're probably more of a naming expert than than any of us, but we, I don't know, you know, it's sort of you can you can hack around at a name endlessly, and mm. and you know it's it's interesting. I, I listened to your podcast with with um, William. Uh, smart the other day and you, you were talking about names frost mm. and smart being yeah. his, his last name and um i've always been deeply envious of people who have names that are you know not not sort of you know the the regular obvious names i mean david david's with k on is kind of you know he could could be anything and could be an acronym yeah, yeah. I, I like i i my my one stipulation was i just whatever happens with weird laker is you know with this new company is it's just got its own mm. its own its own identity, yeah, you know, and it takes time too, doesn't it? It's not something that happens, yeah, overnight. But even you, it's already, I guess, highly publicized, and you guys are working under the banner Laker. Yeah. But you equally, are you both doing your own projects under your own names as well, still? Yeah, because that's where I guess I was just want to understand how that works. So, how much time is Laker? Is Laker just specific projects you work on together? Yeah, it's very. Um, it, it it kind of sometimes there'll be an idea. So my my practice is. Um, you know, there there is stuff that happens that I that I have to uh, you know, like respond to that are obvious things for me to do within uh, my studio, and they're they're sort of inquisition. I'm, I'm sort of inquiring in, in ideas that I've maybe been working in certain formats or stone or bronze or casting, and um, it's it's quite easy that to sort of or for me anyway to kind of 
you know, when it, when it's when something comes up that has, and this is where collaborating is 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 such a joy. Really, is that there's things there that I don't really know that much about, or there's partic- particular techniques mm. that I think, you know, David and, and and his team have worked on on lots of different scales and lots of different mm-hmm. uh, production techniques far beyond sort of my my stuff. And you know, I think you know, it's really uh, enjoyable to just open this idea up to a larger group mm. um, and sort of. We'll, we'll have a we'll have a chat about it and and you know sometimes it'll be like yeah we should do that we'll, we'll continue that and get the guys helping out on that and i know you know we did some metal folding you know back and we use these company and then you know get momentum by that in in that way and then equally some ideas you know david might say uh you know that that seems like something that would fit better with what you're doing there and i think that yeah it's um yeah we just play it a little sort of case by case mm. but in terms of hours in the week it's kind of it's it's not super structured, but you know I'm still carrying on with with my work and. Is he really in his? He's in his bedroom, isn't he? Asleep yeah, yeah. while you're busy working. <laughs> I can see I it. Yeah, you guys designed this shelving system yeah. and the name. I mean, I want to buy it just because the name Continental Shelf Genius. How did you come up with that? Uh, we were looking at a. Oh no, that's right. My my dad was like, um, you know, he said. I was talking about fishing, deep sea fishing, and he goes, "Oh, you got to go off the continental shelf. That's where it drops." Mm. And I thought, "Oh, wow, that's Australia's got this continental yeah. shelf." And we're like, you know, you, we think about you know Australia is an island, a continent, and we're mm. like, well, you know, it's a bit of a play on words, but we're, you know, oh, that, that is that, that is that edge of Australia, the continental shelf. Yeah, I love the humor in that, but it's just stunning and obviously, well, yeah, like robust. Continental is often is often, a, um, you know, people think about the continent, but mm. Europe. Yeah. But it's a, it's a bit of a play on yeah. that as well. Maybe it tweaks that Australian mentality yeah. of it's European, <laughs> so it's better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rush out and buy it now. Yeah. And it's available at Living Edge, um, yes. which is just around the corner from us as well. Amazing uh, Correct, yeah. furniture store. And then the rake stacking chair, how did that come about? Oh, the rake stacking chair is it's uh, one of the projects I was designing and brought into. Like Henry's brought the A-Joint into the Laker brand, and mm-hmm. you know I was going to bring the rake chair in, but... Um, we're still oh, playing. Oh, was yeah. We're still oh. playing with that one. Okay. Henry's still a big fan. Chairs, are, chairs are difficult. They've chairs just got are difficult. A, you know they've got they've got endless. Um, you know, it's one of those things that people. Ta- it's funny. It's, it's someone will look at a table and and you know to the layperson will say you know at this table it's you know four thousand dollars and I've got no problem spending that on a, you know a, a fine solid oak table or something, but then they'll see uh, a chair, and you know a Fritz Hansen. Wagner chair is going to cost probably about four grand as well. And look at the value proposition is how does this chair cost as much as this table? Well, I can tell you the chair is about 20 times more difficult to make. Mm. And also, if you think about all the joints, I mean, really where woodwork is difficult is, is and, and all these kind of things is when you start joining materials together. You know, a table's got four um, and a chair has probably 30. So, you know, the time spent and skill in doing a chair is, you know, it, it, they really should be you know, um, very, very highly regarded because they're one of the harder things to, to put together. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we're like the, yeah, the rate chair is one of those things where just, you just have to you, – you, you do a prototype and you keep working on it. And I think we're, you know, we've got another one coming out soon and we'll you know, keep, test, keep testing and, and, mm. and get one that works. I had an abstract thought the other day, or I'm looking through interior magazines and books and stuff, and going into showrooms or going into people's houses. I just had this kind of like just noticed that most houses are just full of 
things to sit on. Like a whole bunch of things, like yeah. table, chairs, yeah. couch, yeah. chairs everywhere. Like how many? How much do we need? Yeah, places to sit. I don't know. I think because it becomes most of the interiors. You should, ask, um, you should ask John Paulson. He'll design a house that has nowhere to sit. sit. <laughs> <laughs> Put him on the list, Luca. Or get, get hold of him. Yeah. <laughs> design a beautiful house in Mallorca, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, look, I think that some houses are. Um, yeah, I think that that you know you're just looking at the the, the things that we all fill our homes with. And yeah. I mean, chairs are such an iconic object you know people want them for their visual appeal for their sculptural you know kind of forms and, and sometimes to sit in because <laughs> like, there's a i think most people probably sprawl out on the sofa or sit in a dining chair or go into bed that's about it yeah. but yet we have all these other yeah how much, I mean, how much time do we sit down during the day do you guys know Too the much. ergonomics around that no well, i'm sure there's stuff we're sitting now on a chair yeah, yeah. Well, i yeah. think we i think you know i think there's that that task chair is is a is a big is a big business. So it's not something um, you know we're tackling now, but that's you know that's huge. Um, yeah, but I suppose it's standing desk now. Everyone's kind of yeah. I don't know about the old standing desk, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. standing podcast. Yeah, we like sitting yeah. down. Yeah. We like sitting down. Yeah, I got this Eames chair in Ottoman, and I literally every time I sit in it, I'm asleep in a second. Yeah, and I don't know. They must they must put some kind of stuff in it to me <laughs> purpurey filling or something so, uh, what, I love Sends about, me off. what I love about that product is it's at least 60 years old yeah it? it's more maybe even more yeah it's still going strong but it was just I don't think that there was a tremendous amount of ergonomic study that went into that oh product. really well I mean I know that the Eames were very that they were very studious and that they did they did do a lot of prototypes and try a lot of things out and they had a lot of theories around ergonomics but the level of that we can take ergonomics today versus what they did back then. I mean, back then they didn't have a laboratory or no. you know, or 3D scanning or any of, any of those sort of tools that we have access to today. And yet they still created, you know, one of the most comfortable chairs. And I'm not, you know, yes, probably the foams have been improved. Um, but if you have a 40-year-old one or a 50-year-old one, it, you'll still fall asleep straight mm. away. And it's just, you know, it's just clever design. Yeah, it really is. As as industrial designers, do you cringe when I say that I bought a chair that's sixty years old? Or are you because you are you thinking that every time you purchase something, you should be thinking forward, like being more futuristic about your purchase? No, buying something new. No, I mean, you, when you came to our studio, you sat in a couple of forty-year-old. Um, well, those are copies, weren't they? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this do you want over. to sell those? This is, this is over. That <laughs> color, that co is it butterscotch? It was a beautiful color, wasn't it? It's, that an it's like a Camel. sage or an olive. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. yeah. No, I just wondered if you thought that, okay, well, no, you don't then. So it's, it's how do you collect? Do you collect just things that you feel you like? Or how important is the designer behind it? Or does that go hand in hand? Yeah, no, for me, I mean, it used to be more about the designer behind it. I used to be quite obsessed with the sort of the name and because and I would research the designer about these little objects that I collect. But I've, it's it's moved more to what resonates with me. Hmm. And it was interesting when, I, when when Dave was talking about his, his designers and, and the, the people that, you know, inspire him. It's the other the other thing I was thinking of is, you know, architecture does and architecture is a is a big inspiration and a lot of the time I'll collect for spaces and volumes and 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 you know sometimes with no no immediate place in mind mm -hmm. but I kind of um, yeah it's sort of a well sometimes it's just opportunity as yeah, well like stuff comes up that you I might not be able to buy this again yeah um, 
and I, I'm not as much of a collector as, as Henry is. I've got two young children now. And so that stuff's just going to be destroyed. Ikea, so I'm on, all the way. No, I won't do that either. <laughs> <laughs> I won't do that either, unfortunately. Nothing against Ikea. But There's some good stuff in there. There is some good stuff in there, but... Um, Glasses, specifically, that I had at your place the other day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true, the, 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 the tea glasses, yeah. Mm. Um, but, you know, I have to be a little bit... I think we have to put our collecting on pause for a while if we want to maintain the integrity of some of our... I've got a beautiful um, a Belgian sofa, actually that Henry found, um, green leather sofa. I forget Ooh. the name. I forget the brand. It's it's a bit of it's quite esoteric. Um, but last the Henry lo- loan it. Henry loan it to you. No, no, he sent me a link. Buy this, and so I did. Oh. <laughs> it's about five or six years ago. But last night my son was doing swan dives on it. So I think <laughs> like, oh, here we go. Oh, funny. Yeah. And what are, what are you guys working on now? Well. Um, Obviously, we're developing the Laker brand. There's, when you when you start a, a, an actual brand, there's, uh, there's a lot of logistics behind it, mm. more so than the, the design is almost the easy part for us. The rest mm. of it is actually getting it operating smoothly and, and you know not disappointing anybody and quality and all those kind of things. We're also, um, we're also um, looking at doing a couple of um, consultative projects through the Laker brand as well mm-hmm. so that we're, Henry and I can actually consult to you know, other brands or other companies, um, which oh, I think cool. is quite quite interesting. Cause yeah, I, I get a lot of um, requests as well that, that of things that are just sort of outside of my studio's capability, you know, especially after the sort of ESOP um, uh, project. You know, there's, um, there'll be... We're just not set up for that kind of, that kind of project basis um, mm. in product design, and that's something that... You know, was a, made made perfect sense to do as Laker because there's sort of um, a lot more historical knowledge in in Kaon kind of operationals and and all, not to mention the ideas and just you know um, skill set there that we thought oh, okay this makes this this is a good opportunity to sort of flex into some of those um, some of those op- some of those opportunities which I would have previously just sort of knocked back mm. um, uh, just for, for lack of being able to sort of sort of resource them. I guess that's the the broader overarching story about Laker and Henry Nye's collaboration is is because of that sort of quite different background, but sort of I guess shared appreciation mm. of of design and 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 products, materials, those kind of things. That the things that we're passionate about are, are quite similar, but the way that we approach it is very different. So we're not really treading on each other's toes, mm-hmm. and I think that's. Um, quite important if you have two people who are do things the same way you're kind of fighting over the same piece of turf so mm. um i think that's been that's important in all collaborations i collaborate you know on my interior design projects with kelvin ho and the acme guys and mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff and the reason i do that is because i'm i can't do what they do and um mm-hmm. and we bring different strengths to the you know mm-hmm. to to the project and um yeah i, I think that's important you talk about before how it can be quite hard to run a business, but how do you, I mean, it seems to me that you both get on incredibly well mm. um, with and without whiskey yeah, <laughs> and with and without flying everywhere. Yeah. And h- how do you, how do you manage your, bo- separately, how do you manage your wellness? Um, 
Well, I've been struggling with that the last, because uh, I've got a very young baby at home, and so that means... That's the excuse I used to use. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is that the excuse for opening a bottle of wine? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I, I used to be a lot more, and I'm going to come, I'm coming back to it slowly, I used to be a lot more int- um, focused on sort of training, mm-hmm. uh, physical training, um, as well as, um, I used to work a lot on the weekends, mm-hmm. and I've cut that out completely. Oh, it's kind of impossible with a family. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I think those things are particularly important. I'm trying to reduce screen time as well. I've always been a pretty good eater, so I'm, I'm kind of um, there's kind of some of those simple things that I kind of try to keep it to the simple things now. Um, I, I don't want to put too much effort into living, if if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean with uh, you know to putting too many rules and regulations on on yeah. what happens. It's for me, it's just the, the simple things. Henry's a lot more, um, he's a lot fitter than I am. That's yeah, he's sure. looking pretty buff. Yeah. I've just uh, I've had a hiatus from any exercise for the past um, you know, 10, 15 years, um, oh. mainly because I didn't have to do, do anything, and I still don't really have to do any exercise. Oh, um, God. As my, as my uh, trainer says, he says, Henry, I've seen more fat on a chip. <laughs> so <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't have a weight issue. but um, I Congratulations, do, I do, bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I do have an incredibly fast metabolism. But, no, it is, um, it's more for me. I, I just started to go back to doing some exercise just for, just for clarity of, uh, of head, you know, getting, making, mm. getting out of the house. And that is one of the things that I've got to say is, this work from home thing I've been doing for a long time yeah. in various formats, although and now I've built this kind of, you know, shrine to work from home. <laughs> yeah, as, yeah. You, as you saw, yeah. it's like it's actually it's it's a little it's a little over the top. I, I sometimes am like, okay, I've got to gotta leave this let alone leave Darlinghurst, I've got to leave, you know, this like square meter patch. Comes to my house to work. Yeah. <laughs> so, but my, yeah. my, my my bags just arrived at your place while you've been here. <laughs> I'm moving in. 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 Where are you going? Well, I'll go to Clareville. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But it's interesting that, isn't it? Like your home and your studio. Like I, I, I certainly, like I've, my, my kids are now working with me and um, I remember them as small children back in London lying on the floor in the studio and the studio was kind of, was kind of everything that was kind of where I spent majority of my time, and so mm. the family came to the studio. Yeah, didn't live in the studio. Well, actually, initially, initially did had a spare room, and that was the studio. So everything was one. There is really wonderful benefits of that, but equally, there's you really do feel like you need to get out and kind of yeah get about. But I mean, I've always been very envious of people who have managed to do that really well. Like, like um, well, William Smart's done that. Um, he's done that beautifully. Yeah. Um, a lot of guys I know in London have done that. Their studio is their home. Yeah. And it's just a fantastic. They managed to make it work. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> they live at a hundred percent, which I, I I equally like. But I can. There's, there's pros and cons for both ways of working, I guess. Yeah. I guess one of the things that I've done, well, that because um, our, our studio director uh, was my wife, Jeremy, and. Um, Something that we've consciously done since our second child has come along is is just made the decision that she's not going to be as involved in the studio as um, as she was before, and that's really just so that we can so that home is about home and family, mm-hmm. and I think that's really quite important because you know it, it's it is stressful 
work mm-hmm. is stressful and it is busy. And I think if all your conversations become about work, then there's something really rich there that you're sort of giving up. Yeah. And, you know, we don't really want to do that. She's still very much involved, obviously, and she's still critical to the... To oh, and she said she was your wife. I mean, no, she, she is my wife. She, is your she, wife. <laughs> she was... She, she, well, she is still the studio director. But yeah. um, I think the thing that we're mindful of is... Uh, making sure that we have time apart, mm. away from the studio. Um, that's just about us as a family, and just about us and our children, and, yeah. and that kind of thing. And but I mean, you know, I'm also loath to give up on on her ideas and her um, and yeah. her abilities and her expertise because she's you know a big part of what the studio has done over the last five or six years. Yeah, yeah. Have you guys felt like you've designed your lives in the, separately or recently together? Or um, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Do you believe it's possible? I mean, because you're designing everything else but it. Yeah. You know, like I mean, I think I have to a degree. There's a you yeah, know, there's there's a certainly sure. um, you know, th- but there's it's what is it? It's sort of prototype your life. I don't know. It's kind of yeah. you know, you you, you have to you've, you're constantly testing it and mm. seeing how it works. And you know, this this working in the same place as living and you know having the studio and 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 Laker all on this one premises, which has been fantastic. I'm already thinking, oh, I wonder what the future would look like when this gets bigger. You know, mm. do I really want to be here? So, yeah. you know, there's always a questioning of that. And I think, you know, that that's what that's what prototyping's for. You know, you just mm. keep you keep you keep tweaking it. Yeah, I think from my perspective it's um initially yes. Uh, certainly working towards that and um there's an element of control there and I've kind of that element of control has a little bit been taken away from us by um by children and and letting them have the room to sort of do what they want to do. So mm. there's there's a bit of chaos in there, and I, I I'm loathed right now when they're so little to um, try to control too much. Mm. You know, um, the space around them and what they can do and what they have. And I think design your life for me has a slight connotation of you know perfection, and um, I think. Um, we're not going to be able to achieve that, and, no. and we can, and we can kind of celebrate the imperfection. And I, uh, that's kind of what I like a lot of, about a lot of the designs that I like, um, is that they're not, you know, bulletproof and perfect. That mm. there's a bit of, um, as Henry says, naivete um, about them, and so there's there's joy in those little things as well. Mm. Uh, but I'm d- I'm definitely working towards designing a life, yeah, um, in a way. Well, it's interesting because I mean, designing a life isn't meant to be, like, perfect. I think it's all about incremental change for yeah. the better. Like I said, it's maybe a bit of a connotation that I'm yeah. reading into it. And you see, I can I focus on being fittish, not fit. <laughs> um, so any effort towards making life better is, is, a, is a good thing, you know. And I think, you know, we're talking to you guys separately about your own personal journeys through life so far, mm. it looks like you've been trying to find the way that works and in, in improving on your life and what you do yeah. every day, which is cool. Yeah. And it's really cool to come together. You've created an environment for both of you guys to kind of get, come together and play and, and focus and try stuff and collaborate, and that's brilliant. Mm. You know, that's, yeah. the, that's what the magic's going to come out of that, and it is already. Yeah. Uh, and the kids are kind of at that, you know, kids, I, I found when my kids were young, that, that's the most creative time. Yeah. For them. They're yeah. exploring, they're experimenting, they're making messes everywhere. Yeah, yeah, You know, questioning everything, and that's what designers do best. Yeah. It s- snaps you out of your bad mood pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate catching up today. Thank, thank you, Vince. Yeah. Cool. Good to talk. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life from Lego to Skyscrapers with Henry Wilson and David Kayon. Tune in next week. We'll be catching up with Cario Architects directors Sean McGivern and Patrick Kowski. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.